Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is May 19th of 2016, and tonight our guest is Christopher Maraff. He's been writing for the Daily Beast about the opioid crisis, about Narcan, methadone, and all those good things, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. First, let me do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge Layla support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. The book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org book. Our guest is with us already. I'm going to bring him on right now. Hello, Christopher. How are you doing this evening? I'm well, thank you. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit, how did you get interested in writing about opioids and the opioid crisis? Well, um, as a criminal justice reporter, uh, a native Philadelphian, and um, a recovering heroin user myself, um, I've sort of been immersed in this topic for longer than, um, you know, I, I probably would have preferred. Um, but as a, uh, from a journalistic perspective, um, it's difficult to cover crime or criminal justice policy in a city like mine without encountering the war on drugs and the impact that it's had on uh, mostly marginalized communities. Um, I live in a place called Kensington, which is about a stone's throw right now from uh, one of the largest heroin markets on the East Coast. Um, I could probably walk there in 10 minutes. Um, So I am sort of um, on a daily basis uh, encountering uh, my neighbors and people in this area that I live that are either in treatment or nodding out on a corner or addicted or not um, having the proper access to treatment. Um, So um, probably the avenue of criminal justice policy um, led me into thinking more about the war on drugs and drug reform and how uh, moving forward in our sort of retrenchment from our zero tolerance prohibition uh, drug policy, we can have the right foundation in place for, um, you know, a changing dynamic where people can be transitioned into treatment instead of put into jail. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I got involved a little sideways myself. I was working on some alcohol issues of my own. And I learned about harm reduction. And, you know, somebody said that that my approach to using alcohol, cutting back to drinking one day a week, but drinking a lot safely at home, they said, that's a harm reduction approach. So I wanted to learn more about that. I started in 2002 volunteering at the uh, needle exchange program in Minneapolis, where I was living at the time, and uh, got to know really great people. I love the harm reduction philosophy of, you know, welcome every positive change. You know, if people come in and, you know, get clean needles, you say, thank you, you're doing a great thing. If they turn in used needles, you know, it's like, thank you. And it's never this, well, you know, maybe you're not doing so well. Maybe you need to go to treatment and all this. And there's nothing coercive, everything welcoming and thankful and helpful. And I totally fell in love with that. And, well, you know, started applying it to alcohol and wound up doing a lot of work, you know, with drug policy and, uh, you know, promotion of harm reduction myself. So that's where I got involved. 
And, you know, that's how, that's why I was seeing your articles being posted on Facebook. They were very good articles, and I want to talk a little bit about them. So um, you have one, I think, about the, about the, the policy with pills that is turning the people to heroin. Now, tell me about that article. Well, um, that particular article, I, I've written about that topic before, and um, in, I've encountered uh, through my work <laughs> a number of pain, uh, people that are in pain management that have been uh, sort of captured in this net of drug enforcement as the, uh, the war against pill mills and prescription medic- uh, narcotic medication has sort of intensified. And um, that particular article revolved around a reader of mine named Chris Baltz, who contacted me in reference to an earlier article I'd written on this topic. And, and he was um, very excited that somebody was talking about it. He, he's, a, he's from Florida. He's a young man um, in his early 20s, just had his first child. And uh, he, he, he followed the, the path of somebody that, you know, was in an accident, a motorcycle accident, and was prescribed some oxycodone and became dependent on it. And then before he knew it, he was maybe using a little bit more of it. Um, sometimes he was using his recommended dose. Sometimes he was taking a little extra supplement. He was never really um, terribly unmanageable and was working and functioning. In 2011, as uh, you may know, um, the, the governor of Florida uh, initiated um, a real crackdown on the pill mills. Um, the, the state of Florida was becoming something of a tourist destination uh, for people trying to obtain uh, narcotic painkillers um, for illicit use. Uh, he gradually was finding it harder to get the prescription that he was, um, you know, given for, for his pain. At this point, he was dependent on it. And uh, his pain management clinic one day closed, and he was pushed to heroin. So he told me this story um, on the phone, and um, it really resonated with me. I, I, I didn't uh, know that I was going to write about him, um, but he, he stayed in touch. And uh, his story was just really heart-wrenching. I mean, this is a guy that had never been in trouble with the law, had never seen heroin before. And um, by the result of policies that were designed to help, uh, they wound up creating um, a a living hell for him that that ended in a felony arrest in a sting operation, strangely enough, that was um, orchestrated by the police, you know, to, to capture burglars. But he was just a drug addict that was sort of, you know, set up by a guy that he was running with who was trying to get out of trouble with the law. So, you know, a revolving cycle of, um, of crime and punishment and addiction for him for, for a while. So um, I think that the reason I like to focus on this topic is I, I believe that um, the messaging on the opioid crisis uh, is very focused on supply side uh, enforcement, you know, keeping prescription mm-hmm. pills from the streets. Um, and, and I think that there are a lot of people that are getting, um, that are, that are becoming collateral damage in that effort. Um, and their voices are not being heard properly in the, in, in this dialogue. Um, and, you know, the, these medicines do, uh, help a lot of people. Um, I think mm-hmm. that, uh, there is a, there is a reasonable need to, um, in some ways pr- put some, guidelines on um, acute pain, but um, in terms of people that go to the dentist, they don't need maybe 30 Percocets, but people in chronic mm-hmm. pain tend to be helped um, a lot of times by, by these drugs. And, and, and at least in Chris's case, 
he was he got pushed into the illicit drug world um, because of public policy. And to me, that seemed uh, like a real injustice um, because he was a patient that was using a, a drug that was relatively safe. It was clean. He was getting a pharmaceutical that was the same every time he bought it. And then he was using, you know, he was forced to use street drugs, which are adulterated and um, vary in potency. And he, you know, he was putting himself in more danger. So I, I think that the dialogue on opiates has focused a little bit too hard on uh, chronic pain patients. And, and I know from talking to them that they are feeling the effect of that um, in terms of stigma, in terms of access, um, and in cases like Chris's, um, you know, actually um, being, being forced to transition to um, a, a dirty street drug. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the people that are making these policies have no idea at all of what the science is actually saying about what's going on. You know, I keep hearing over and over people say, the, 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 there's this huge rising tide of opioid addiction, but if you look at the epidemiology, the number of people with opioid dependence hasn't increased very much over the past 20 years, uh, you know, compared to the number of opioid overdose deaths, which are way up. And if you look at, I mean, what I've seen going on is, uh, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, you know, doctors were sending everybody home with these huge doses of opioids, whether they needed them or not. Um, and, you know, there, there were just tons of these things floating around, you know, and everybody was getting them. And then all of a sudden it's uh, like, well, if anyone shows signs of dependence, they're saying to the doctors, now, you must cut them off. And that's like the worst thing. You need a maintenance dose. That's what you need if you have dependence, obviously. Would you yeah, agree with and, that? And I think that um, uh, there's a, there is a lack of knowledge among the general public about the difference between dependency and addiction. And I think that has uh, fueled a stigma against um, a lot of people who legitimately need opioids. Um, if you take you know, an opioid narcotic long enough, your body will become physically dependent on it. But if you're taking it as prescribed and you don't have compulsive behavior and your life is manageable, you know, diagnostically, you are not an addict. Um, and so I think that um, there has been a confusion of those terms that has uh, aggravated the stigma against people that take opioids daily and um, are sort of are being lumped in with this general idea of, of this crisis or epidemic, which, um, you know, we legitimately are, are, are confronting right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, if people do develop dependence on something like an opioid, a benzodiazepine, a, a physical dependence, um, you know, and if they don't need it any longer for pain or something, you know, they can be tapered off with no, uh, problem, you know, gradually, and they really won't even feel anything, and they certainly won't, you know, go into all these drug cravings and all this crazy stuff because it's just a physical dependence. Right. I mean, well, there's so there's a, a couple aspects to that. I mean, there's there's one. I would say if you are if you are managing um, and you have limited, you're you're comfortable with whatever side effects you're suffering, and and you're taking a pill every morning to get out of bed because you have chronic back pain, um, you know, then that's working for you. Um, you, mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. you may not need to come off of it. Um, these are, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. these are medicines that are relatively cheap. They're available. Um, so, 
there is a there is this idea that you know that somebody should not need something we have a stigma against requiring certain things but not others we don't tell people that they should stop wearing their glasses and get laser surgery even though that's available mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but we think that people should be finding other ways to, to deal with their pain that may be for some people um but mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I think that should be determined on an individual basis and then the other side of that is i think that there is a lack of knowledge among uh many medical professionals about what withdrawal is is like and how to manage a, a tapered withdrawal. And I, and I know this from, from people that I've spoken to and sources that have um, been with, you know, in, in treatment for, for uh, chronic pain and are either transitioned to another drug improperly or, or ch- change dose improperly. So I think, I think there's just a general lack of education around uh, opioid dependency and uh, around um, tapered withdrawal. And I, and I believe, you know, that's, that's starting to change. There's a push, uh, you know, to educate doctors more on addiction and dependency. Um, but I think first we need to decide, uh, you know, on an individual basis, what, what is doing a, a patient good? Um, there's some people that may take a Xanax every night to sleep. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't have any reason to stop them. I, I don't, I mean, unless they decide that, that it is unmanageable for them, um, that, you know, I don't, I don't feel like there should be a compulsive, uh, you know, or a coerced, um, you know, tapering or withdrawal from patients that are benefiting from a drug unless they, they find the side effects untenable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree absolutely. Um, there's, I mean, I don't care what drugs people take. If you want to take, you know, if you want to shoot heroin, if you want to drink alcohol, um, you know, whatever, that's your choice. That's, this is my opinion anyway. Um, as long as you do it safely in a way that, you know, not going to harm anybody else. You know, if you decide that you're going to drink a fifth of whiskey some night, you should make sure that your car keys are locked up where you can't access them if you've had a problem with drinking and driving. But as long as you're not hurting anybody else, you know, my feeling is people should be able to legally buy any substance and use any substance they want. Yes, I mean, I, I would I would tend to agree. Um, and, and um, you know, when when you when you create a black market for something um, it creates all kinds of ancillary um, harms. And, and um, uh, so what we have in the neighborhood where I live is, is um, uh, it's a high crime area. Um, we've, we've sort of diverted a lot of the drug activity into, um, you know, a, a three square mile or so area, um, you know, and, and so you walk out of your house or I, I may on some days and find syringes or, um, empty baggies. So the idea that there could be a safe place to use or a safe way to use is certainly um, beneficial to the communities in which this stuff is being diverted that most Americans don't see. Um, in terms of uh, the the idea that somebody can manage an addiction or manage a drug use, I should say, um, I think we have uh, the way that recovery has sort of been defined in this country um, for so long by the 12 steps abstinence only crowd is that uh, we see this issue very much in the black and white. Um, So for instance, if you had a problem with heroin and you've given it up um, and now are just smoking pot or drinking a little booze at night um, to relax or unwind, um, you would not be seen as a recovered person or a recovered heroin Mm -hmm. addict. So, so I think mm-hmm. that um, the conversation has been dominated by an all-or-nothing mentality that has uh, tended to, uh, you know, in, in my experience, push a lot of users um, further out of 
the mainstream or out of the community because there's not a, a place for them in between for, for sort of a managed use, um, let's say. And uh, so I think, I think that's been harmful. And, and that was really much of the purpose of the article that I wrote last on treatment, the, the third in this series for the Daily Beast that, I, that I, tried to, I tried to emphasize a little bit was just that this conversation on recovery needs to be reassessed. Um, we need to reassess what types of metrics we use to determine whether somebody is living a manageable quality, you know, productive life, um, you know, after, as they're managing some sort of dependency or addiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, I don't know if you're familiar too much with Switzerland, but they have, uh, really changed their view of this and uh, Switzerland's one I looked at quite a bit. They had huge uh, opioid heroin problem, you know, 30 years ago was big there 30 years ago as it is in the United States today. And it's been reduced to a tiny fraction of what it used to be. And what do they do? Well, first methadone maintenance is available to everyone free. Um, And they also have heroin maintenance for people that don't do well with methadone. And, you know, when people can get their heroin free from the government, uh, they're not out there committing crimes to get heroin. That's true. I mean, and that's a hard sell. Um, but, but I would say that, um, that as, I, as I said before, I mean, co- compulsory uh, uh, um, abstinence just simply does not work. Um, and there are better ways to manage public health crises. Um, uh, a great example. I mean, cigarettes is, is a great example. Smoking, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. old enough to remember when you could smoke on an airplane. Uh, oh, yeah. And, you know, and I think today you would probably get rendered to Guantanamo for that. Um, but if, you know, you go back 50 <laughs> years, 60 years, cigarette smoking was ubiquitous. It was glamorous. Everyone did it. Even doctors smoked. Um, just since 1964 that, that the Surgeon General released, you know, sort of the first report on smoking and health. And, um, you know, we've dropped from 43% or so Americans smoking down to, I don't know, maybe I would think, I think it's under 20% now. So, I mean, this is just a public health campaign. This is, there's, you know, we've, we've taxed cigarettes certainly, um, but they are still a legal product. I can walk to my corner right now and buy them. Uh, and we've managed to do an immense, uh, immense work in that area. Seatbelts is another example. Um, you know, we all mm-hmm. grew up, at least anyone that's 40 or older, uh, what was a seatbelt? Nobody wore them. Uh, now it's almost unthinkable that somebody would get into the car and not put on their seatbelt. Um, so I, I think the prohibitionist um, attitude towards, towards um, you know, public health issues uh, has been proven to not work. Um, and so what's, what my work now is sort of focused on, so how can we, how can we make it work? What's next? Um, and my concern is with the opioid messaging that's sort of coming out of the media and out of um, Washington is it's, it's not terribly nuanced. So we're, we're seeing sort of this push for this push for treatment. Okay. So we've, we've come to terms with the fact that uh, addiction and drug use um, is, is best handled in a, in a medical setting. And let's say not a, not a criminal justice setting or a treatment. It should be handled in a treatment setting, but, but very few people that aren't intimately involved in this work or that haven't been in treatment themselves or have a family member that's been in treatment don't know what that means exactly. It just sounds like some kind of door that addicts can walk through. And if we just put enough money there, they'll come out the other side and and be well. Uh, But as I said, um, until we have the right metrics for measuring success 
and uh, the right foundation in place for the proper treatment that's going to work for each individual person or, or tailored to the type of drug that they're using. Um, you know, it's just going to be a repeat, a repeat of the waste of money on the war of drugs that we've had for the past 40 years here. Mm-hmm. Well, this opens a whole bunch of questions. Uh, the first one I'm going to ask, I know you wrote about this a little bit, but uh, after the standard rehab, the good old 28-day 12-step abstinence rehab, um, what happens to death rates of opioid users when they get out? Well, uh, they they go up. Um, I mean, and, and I can't speak for everyone that comes out of a 28-day a, a rehab or, or the time that there's – the more time you spend in an inpatient <laughs> setting, surely the more likely you are to – to stop using any substance. I mean, that's been proven in the data, but we're not Mm -hmm. paying for 90 day rehabs anymore or year rehabs. Um, People are getting, you know, if you go into a rehab for two weeks, which is sort of the average private insurance, what would a private insurance will pay for at most? um, 28 days are very rare for private insurance. You you may get that with county assistance, but you come out with, with uh, no tolerance and um, um, you are, cravings are probably not gone yet and you go and you know you you use what would be your normal amount before you went in and 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 a lot of people are overdosing that way i would i would like to see numbers on that i mean i i don't know that data has ever been uh any data exists on uh how how many overdoses are before or right after a period of abstinence um you know a, a prior opioid user right after a period of abstinence um, but I would imagine that it's quite high, uh, and, and mm-hmm. jail has been the same way. People go into jail, they come out, and uh, they fall out on the street that, that day. It happens all the time around here. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's certainly a, a case for reexamining um, the idea of uh, abstinence, certainly compulsory abstinence um, through you know, drug courts or through prison uh, with 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 opioids or, or or any drug really, but opioids it, it can certainly be deadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there actually is some data on that, and the studies were done in uh, Great Britain. Um, you know, the United States never does any studies on mortality on death rates after treatment. They're all done elsewhere, which is ridiculous. But uh, the rest of the world, at least, is interested in if treatment is helpful or harmful. Uh, John Strang and a bunch of other people wrote a paper uh, published 2003 that uh, followed people through the 28-day abstinence-only rehab inpatient. Uh, might have been outpatient. Uh, it, well, followed them through the standard, and it found that the people that uh, abstained, yeah, it was inpatient. When they when they finished the program, um, they were far, far more likely to overdose. Um, I compared it to the typical uh, numbers of active heroin users on the street, numbers of overdoses, and found you know, it was 20 to 30 times more likely to die of an overdose if you successfully completed the treatment. If you relapsed during treatment and kept using during treatment, you were safe. Nobody died that relapsed. Mm-hmm. But the successful graduates, um, you know, I think three out of 80 were dead of overdose right after graduation. Um, oh, I thought I lost you for a yes. second. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's astounding, I, and I would I would like to get my hands on that data. Yes, you're right. In in, in certainly in the U.S., it's it's uh, it's very hard to get some of that that nuance in in the data on overdoses. Um, and um, but but yeah, I mean, when I was 
when I was, uh, you know, running the streets myself in my 20s and, and, and hanging out uh, in, in the neighborhoods with guys that were using, that were hardcore addicts like I was then, um, you know, you didn't, they didn't, they didn't overdose. They were lucky if they could keep themselves from being sick. You know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like, yeah, mm-hmm. this, when you have a top, this isn't people that are daily users that are, that are, um, that are necessarily overdosing um, and dying. Um, they're maintaining at best. Um, and, and, Mm -hmm. and they're lucky too, if they do. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly something that, um, that should be part of the conversation. And and I think it it is becoming more part of the conversation. Um, I will, I will give 60 minutes and CBS news, uh, kudos for introducing that into their, uh, conversation in the last piece they ran on, um, on heroin in in, uh, Ohio. They did a follow-up, uh, I guess a few weeks ago. Um, but where they failed was, uh, they focused on just a single treatment provider and their discussion of treatment that was a faith-based abstinence only treatment center. And they made no distinction about types of treatment or treatment modalities. And I, I found that to be indicative of, of, uh, the lack of knowledge about what treatment means, um, for opiates and what works among, um, the mainstream media, certainly, um, so. Yeah, I, you know, the media pushes 12 steps everywhere. Like, I mean, you can't turn on a TV show, a detective show, or anything without some characters. I'm going to my AA meeting tonight. So, you know, it's like <laughs> the writers are just like completely in love with this stuff. And they certainly don't know any of the research on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that. Well, you know, part of the, the changing conversation has to be the, the idea that the destigmatization of, of addiction and, and drug use, I suppose, because it just was a place people didn't really want to look. Um, and there was shame around it. And, you know, AA meetings are kind of held in these nondescript places. And, and um, you know, it's, it's almost like a secret club in some way. You know, addiction for many years and, and decades was, it was not something that was was out in the open uh, uh, or that people would readily discuss. So the messaging that, that you received, the messaging that I received, um, you know, 15 years ago, and I think a lot of people receive now, is that if you don't get it, you don't succeed, uh, you know, keep, keep coming back. It works if you work it. You know, it's, it's, it's your, you, you know, it was your failing in some way. I don't, I don't think that there's ever been um, sort of a movement among people who are addicted to say, well, you know, how come I've been in rehab five times? You know, like, I'm, certainly it can't, you know, there must be something that you guys are doing wrong here, you know? Um, so I think that the the disease theory of addiction has been helpful in, in changing that. I, I think that where it has been somewhat detrimental um, in, is sort of creating a very narrow framework for, for viewing addiction uh, in terms of, you know, all addicts are the same and um, there's, you know, sort of a one size fits all approach to treating addiction. And if you, if you use one substance, you can never, you never ever possibly use another subject substance responsibly. So um, while I think that the idea of addiction as a disease has helped bring, uh, you know, what was once a very shameful experience uh, out of the shadows, um, it has had this opposite effect of, of sort of lumping all addicts into this, this one box or all people who become addicted to drugs, I should say, uh, or alcohol into this one box, you know? So if you go to an NA meeting, 
you you have to be you know you have or I should say if you are a narcotics user and you go to an AA meeting you know you you have to accept yourself as an alcoholic as well. Um, mm-hmm. it's sort of this. You, you understand where I'm going with this. It's sort of this. Oh yeah. You know we paint we paint we paint addiction with this with this really you know just this one single brush and and everybody's the same and and that's simply not the way it is in the experience of people like you and me that that have uh, you know experienced it from the other side. Well, we have so many myths, and, you know, I don't like the disease theory, and I'll get there in a minute, but we have so many myths. And the number one myth is that addiction is this chronic progressive disease, and everyone has, with addiction dies unless they get treatment. And when we look at the research and the epidemiology, we find out uh, almost everyone recovers that doesn't get treatment. And the people who get treatment uh, – there's no evidence that they do any better than those that don't. I'm speaking treatment in general now mm-hmm. um, because specific treatments we know are very good because uh, methadone is really proven over and over again to reduce the overdose death rate by 75% study after study. Um, other 12-step treatments for addiction uh, you know, the mandated the inpatient 28-day 12-step, uh, the Sandra Bullock treatment, uh, uh, <laughs> that's the one that's killing people. <laughs> that's the one that everybody yeah. thinks is treatment. Um, but, you know, people will, if, if you keep people alive, they're going to kick their addictions uh, eventually, whether you give them treatment or not. So I'm not so happy with the disease theory for that uh, reason. Well, sure. Um, uh, that, that's true. I mean, you, you can't get you can't get sober if you're dead, um, which is why harm reduction is so important. And, and also, you know, just just an, a changing of the messaging around around what uh, what a person experiences as a quality life. Um, addiction, mm-hmm. uh, in my experience, was it was a really terrible place to be. Um, you know, it was uh, it was, you know, a function of. Uh, a particular substance that that at a particular time in my life um, that uh, it may not affect me the same way now. You know, pe- people age out of addiction just like they age out of crime, um, and I, I think that um, you're, you're right. I mean, the, the disease the disease theory has sort of has sort of created this idea that it is chronic and un, untreatable except just to be managed. You know. Um, and that has not been the case in my experience. Um, I, I, I drink, I have a drink every night um, and, and I haven't gone back to, to, um, to, to shooting up, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, <laughs> you know, th- these are, these are, these are myths um, for the most part. And um, unfortunately the, uh, at, while the, the message is changing on, um, you know, the, the criminal justice side of, of how we, how we view drug use and drugs in society, um, we're still operating in this echo chamber that has taken, you know, 75 years or however long it's been since the founding of, of AA um, to dominate uh, the discussion on what a recovered person should look like, um, you know. And I think that that's going to have to evolve over time. But um, it's, it's certainly we're at a critical point right now because we're going to be transitioning a lot of people to treatment if, if uh, you know, if the message from the state and federal government resonates down where it's supposed to. And if they're not getting effective treatment, then what's the point, right? Mm, exactly. And uh, I mean, I'm just going to echo something you said earlier. Um, Cause back in the days when I was drinking three liters of whiskey every week, 
you know, my life was not exactly uh, wonderful and great either, you know, and now I'm transitioned down to one fourth of that. I drink a fifth one day a week and I don't touch it the other six days. And yeah, everything's pretty good because, you know, I get shit done and I'm happy what I'm doing. You know, this is, this is not AA's classic message either of abstain or die. And it's a progressive disease right. and you can only increase your amounts and you'll never decrease and you'll increase till you die, um, which most people don't. Um, I mean, most people get better even without treatment. Um, uh, and this, that brings me to the other issue with the disease theory and treatment, and that is the issue of the therapeutic state. You know, are we of having the government tell people, you have to get treated, you have to go to treatment, as opposed to the government telling people, you have to go to prison. And, you know, this can get way out of hand. And a treatment can be worse than prison. I mean, if you go to prison, you have a set sentence that the judge sets for you. When we see the therapeutic state completely out of control, as we did in the former Soviet Union, you know, you're sentenced to treatment until you get better. And when you get better, is determined by your doctor and you can be, have treatment for life. Um, I don't think the government has any business to send people to either prison or to treatment for using drugs. Um, you know, um, well, that's a, you know, that's, that's a fair point. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, I, I think that, well, first let me, to go back to what you were talking about, about, you know, being in the depths of like a, a real chronic sort of, um, compulsion for a substance. Um, I, I would have to say at least from a drug use perspective, and this is only this, I can only say from my personal experience and some of the people that I know, the worst effects of, their addictions to illegal drugs stemmed from the illegality of it and the, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the world that you had to run in and the life you had to lead um, than the substance itself. Now, we know that there have been doctors that are addicted to morphine their whole life um, that function mm-hmm. probably rather well. Um, so mm-hmm. in, with, in a prohibitionist state, you know, in terms of how we, how we, how we treat um, drugs, and, and, and at one point, alcohol in society. Um, we're only looking through it, you know, through one lens. It's, it, we're, we're dealing with a population that that has to that has to go through, you know, the gauntlet to to, um, mm-hmm. to get the substance that they need. So it creates all kinds of crimes and uh, and and problems with uh, having enough food, to, or enough money to eat or to to live. You're homeless. All those. So once you it's hard to say what if, you know what what would go away in in a in a in a system where there was more managed um use and you know a system of of true legalization um a lot of those problems i mean we see it with with methadone maintenance i mean once people become stabilized um they're still dependent on on something but they are their their compulsion sort of disappears if it's done right um so yeah, I mean, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and then on to your next point about compulsory uh, treatment. Yeah, I mean, th- that's that's um, if we're transitioning people from a jail cell into a rehab, yes, of course that's not gonna that's not gonna do any better. I mean, people need to be given the tools that they need to succeed. Um, certainly, as long as we have a state um, of strict prohibition on drug use, um, you know, there will be other crimes that people will commit to get their drugs, and then you have to deal with 
are we going to send you to jail for shoplifting or are we going to offer you treatment? Um, and I don't really know what the answer to that is. Um, I know that there are legitimately people committing real crimes um, as, a re as a result of the, you know, the, the, the need to acquire uh, their substance. But part of that is just a function of, it, of uh, prohibition, in my opinion, um, and, and mm -hmm, an inadequate mm -hmm. support system for people that do need to use. There are certainly people that want to stop, and they should be given the tools to do that. And um, I don't think that they're necessarily there right now for everybody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, again, Switzerland is uh, such a good model. Um, first of all, methadone-assisted treatments available to everyone for free, unlike the U.S., where you, it's hard to find methadone in lots of places, lots of places you mm -hmm. have to pay out of pocket. Um, people can't afford methadone treatment and they you know and i always hear this oh if you could afford to buy heroin you could afford to buy your methadone oh you want people to go out and commit crimes so that <laughs> they can afford their methadone instead of buying their heroin by committing crimes that doesn't make any fucking sense at all no i mean mm -hmm. there's, there's but in switzerland where it's available free for everyone and there's also heroin assisted treatment of the people in treatment which is most heroin users um 92 percent are on methadone, 6% are on heroin-assisted treatment because most people don't want heroin-assisted treatment. They actually prefer methadone because it stabilizes mm -hmm. them and helps them you know, be productive and it makes it easier for them to hold a job. But even for the 6% that are on heroin-assisted treatment, I mean, suddenly they're getting free heroin. They don't have to commit crimes anymore. The crime rate goes down. They get housed. Um, and the problems basically disappear. And all you have to do is show up to uh, the facility and get your heroin dose three or four times a day, and you're fine. Yeah. No, I, I, I would think that, uh, you know, well, like you said, um, you know, methadone <laughs> in, in that it's more long-acting would certainly be preferable uh, to a lot of people, um, you know, having mm -hmm. to um, having to medicate several times a day. Um, but, we, you know, we also have a, a system um, – in the United States, that is highly restrictive uh, in some states, and even it varies between individual um, outpatient treatment programs, uh, where people are just not really given the space to recover. Um, a, a lot of, uh, I would think, at least in, in Philadelphia, um, some methadone clinics here are, are sort of designed as, as these sort of failure factories. I mean, you know, there's, there's mm -hmm, an emphasis mm -hmm. on there's a lot of county dollars for it. Um, there's, there's, there's money to keep people, there, there's an incentive to keep people in services, be it um, outpatient groups. Um, there's, um, you know, there's a, a, such a high fear of diversion that there's very little um, leeway on, on take-home doses, you know. So, you, you, you know, if you, if you have to go to a clinic every day um, or every other day, um, you know, for the, for the rest of your time in treatment, or if, to, if you have to go to groups um, once a week, uh, you know, it's going to be hard for you to actually become a recovered person. The idea should be to let somebody um, be holistically recover in terms of getting a job and getting a family and, and getting housing and um, not just. So, so there, is, there is certainly a, um, a place to be made for just strict harm reduction where, yes, okay, I get we're getting people off the street and maybe they're not stealing the radio out of your car anymore. But, you're, you know, they're going to a clinic every day and you're not giving them the space to become fully functioning members of the community. Um, and I think that while federal restrictions on methadone 
tend to be relatively progressive, in the, at least in the sense that, mm-hmm. you know, you can get thir- 30 days of take-homes, which is really, you know, it's like a prescription for the most part. Um, individual mm-hmm. clinics um, are allowed to, you know, to, to really make the, they use their discretion on things like that. And, um, you know, so they're, they're keeping people in three day, three days a week outpatient groups for smoking pot, you know, or, or, or things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and I, I think that um, that's one of the reasons that there's a low utilization rate from my experience among um, drug uh, opiate users, heroin users in terms of methadone. Um, they view it as a ball and chain and, and, and treat and, medical treatment should not be seen that way if, if possible. Um, and I think we have the tools for it not to be that way. Um, but unfortunately mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. is. Yeah, I can agree with that. I haven't had a chance to look at methadone clinics in as much depth as I would like, but I have seen this huge variation from clinic to clinic. And some of them have groups where they confront you and they scream at you like you were in Synanon or some old uh, treat. Uh, therapeutic community from the 60s and you know that that does all that does is make people want to use drugs if you scream in different places and call them insults i mean we've known this forever now um some clinics some methadone clinics in the u.s are really good model clinics and you know they give you a 30-day take home they don't care if you smoke a little marijuana because you know what the hell who cares if you're not shooting heroin, if you're not having to, uh, you know, steal money to buy heroin, if you shoot, if you smoke a little dope, there's no big deal. And, you know, then they give the reasonable take-homes. But the other clinics are, are horrible places, and there should be some proper oversight, uh, you know, in my opinion, from the government to make them all the best ideal model clinics. Unfortunately, if we let our government get, get a hold of it, they'd probably make them into the worst clinics instead of the best ones. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it, and then part of the uh, the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act and and and, and other pieces of, of legislation is to sort of look at at impediments. I mean, I, uh, to access to to medication assisted treatment, and and I think if they do enough digging, uh, they'll find that there are these wide variations, and and there are. Um, I, I had a, a, a very insightful meeting with Mark Perino, um, who's uh, at the um, at ATOD, um, the uh, outpatient treatment, um, the, the OTP's advocacy group up in New York, and he's been doing this work for years, and he's he's really proud of the, of the guidelines that they've implemented um, that he helped write uh, from a federal level, uh, but they're not necessarily they're not being properly um, applied in. In, in every state um, or every individual clinic. And I think if you look at some of them, they're not, they're not, if you look at the federal guidelines, they're not terribly bad. Um, they mm-hmm. give a little mm-hmm. bit more leeway, but, um, but yeah, I think if we start really looking at some of the impediments to people getting access to the proper treatment, um, that's the first thing that'll, that'll be found is just that um, this mass variation of, of what people can expect from, from a clinic setting. And um now with the buprenorphine uh, being used more, utilized more um, and in an office setting, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, what's going to happen with that. Um, our, uh, right now, there's very little, um, very little guidelines and standardization around how doctors prescribe that. And I know there's a push from some advocates to develop a system where there's more, more of a standardization um, and it, to, in my mind, while that may be a good thing uh, to an extent, it would be a tragedy if it, if it turned out the way the methadone system has turned out. Um, 
which has just been bastardized and 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 um, made into in in many cases just cash machines for for um, for providers, um, you know. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was uh, pretty disappointed when uh, you know I saw Obama's you know new drug plan come out, new drug strategy, and uh, you know he's going to put all these new dollars into treatment and you know. Okay, so I'm looking. How much are you going to spend to uh, expand methadone? Uh, there's no mention of any expansion of methadone. The only mention of methadone was to reduce it for pain prescriptions, which is a good idea. Mm-hmm. This is another topic that we won't go into right now. But uh, there was no mention of uh, more methadone clinics. And, uh, well, they did want to uh, lift the cap on uh, buprenorphine doctors, I think, from 100 to 200 which was a good improvement. There's some money there, but then there's wasting all this, wasting all this fucking money on drug courts and rehab and all this crap that, uh, you know, they should just cut those people off and put all those dollars into methadone and stuff that's actually proven to work. Yeah, no. And, uh, and you're, you're right about the, 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 uh, the lack of, so we, yeah, one of my concerns is, um, is that the the discussion around suboxone and buprenorphine? Which I mean, it's it's a great it's a it's a great uh, substance for people that need it. It's it's working well. Um, it has a low overdose uh, potential, uh, so there are a lot of benefits to it. But um, it doesn't work for everyone, and um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it it caps out uh, at at a, at a certain level where you know a, a high a high tolerance user. Um, will will need meth will need methadone and um, I'm afraid that they we will see um, sort of a push. I mean I've already heard it um, from from advocates that there's um, you know an idea among cer- some legislators that don't understand the difference that that you know me- you know we won't need methadone anymore and 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 we will and I think that there needs to be uh, definitely a discussion around how that fits into the um, into the conversation. And, and what we're going to wind up with is a two-tiered, you know, a two-tiered treatment system where you have uh, people going to methadone clinics and being sort of treated horribly. And then the people that can afford it going to their doctor and, and, and being able to, to um, you know, recover on their own terms. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, um, that's, that's an interesting, that the, the lack of, um, just of, of discussion in the media or from government on, on methadone's place and all this ha- has been disconcerting. And, and you're right about the, uh, the the majority. You know, we hear about methadone as, as overdoses, but the majority of overdoses are are from you know improper conversion of pain patients, not from diversion of uh, methadone uh, mm-hmm. from clinics. You know, and you know, mm-hmm. I in terms of suboxone, I mean, I know. A, a counselor here in, in Philly that, that works in a Suboxone program that thinks it should be, you know, we should have a vending machine out on the, out underneath the L just for anybody who wants one. It's like, you know, why, why withhold this from people that can use it? I mean, even if they're using it for harm reduction, you know, to, to, for a couple of days, you know, it's, it's better than having people run in the street sick and, and desperate. Um, and I, like, again, this all goes back to the conversation of what should recovery look like? Um, do we need mm-hmm. somebody to be completely drug and alcohol free to call that person a success story? Um, and mm-hmm. I, I say the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's bizarre because we don't expect people to be completely drug and alcohol free uh, because uh, we make an exception for nicotine and for caffeine. 
and you can go to NAA meetings and AA meetings, and you can smoke your brains out and die of lung cancer, and you can drink from coffee, drink, you know, 20 cups of coffee all day long, and, you know, uh, and you say, oh, and those people are in recovery, but that person drank a beer last night. He's relapsed. He's back to day one. Take away all his time. <laughs> you know, what the fuck is that? Uh, nicotine is, like, is the number one killer drug of in the world. Oh, well. I know that that's that, that statistic I said earlier when I talked about smoking on a plane. Like that's actually probably the one place where you will find the most smokers <laughs> outside of an NA or an AA meeting. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and you know, um, you know, I was gonna say, you know, if we treated addiction, you know, what if we treated real diseases like cancer the same way that we treat addiction? And we had the legislators arguing, are we going to phase out radiation therapy or should we phase out chemotherapy? Which should we limit treatment to? Let's get rid of surgery. Oh, if you want surgery, you have to go to another state. You know, <laughs> you know if we did this kind of insanity with cancer patients, everybody would be dying of cancer. Well, that's uh, and that's that, that's one of my favorite lines in the last the last piece I wrote was um, – you know, I, I, the the motto that you hear so often in rehabs and in 12-step groups is keep coming back. It works if you work it. Um, and I just imagine what somebody would say if they heard that from, you know, their cardiologist or their, uh, you know, some <laughs> other kind of doctor. Um, you know, that is not a, that would be considered fraud um, or quackery, surely. Um, so, you know, there, there's, um, there's a lot of work to be done, um, you know, on, on changing that conversation. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm a child of the war on drugs in some way. I mean, I, I was born in 1970. So, you know, when Nancy Reagan said, just say no, um, you know, she was talking to me. I was, I was a 16-year-old high school <laughs> student. Um, and uh, we, we know that that didn't work. Um, and, uh, you know, it's sort of my generation or this generation that, that sort of got that message is, is coming to terms, I think, with the fact that, that, uh, that, that war on drugs uh, was a false promise of some sort. It created, you know, a, a horrendous um, problems in our communities. And, um, you know, where we go from now is going to really depend on how people, how that message resonates with people that don't have daily experience with it. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the people that are making policy um, don't come and walk the streets that I walk every day. They don't, they don't see how this impacts people um, on a day-to-day basis. It's, 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 it's still an abstraction to a lot of people. Um, and so it's, I, I, see a, I see a lot of work ahead, but it, the conversation is changing. I'm certainly um, optimistic about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, well, I had one more cancer analogy that <laughs> just was coming to mind. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> uh, which is why, why don't we have Cancer Anonymous? I mean, if, we, if, if you really believe the 12-step program, you know, it says um, that, you're, that you're powerless, that there's one who has all power, that one is God. May you find him now. I don't know if you've been to AA meetings. I've been to too many of them. They oh, drove me to church. Sure have, yeah. But, you know, if you believe in an all-powerful God that uh, can cure all diseases, you know, why not uh, go to Cancer Anonymous meetings and just ask God to uh, cure your cancer instead of, you know, actually, you know, doing medical treatments like radiation and all that stuff because, you know, we don't actually believe that works. And and let's face it. I mean, they, there are groups for uh, Overeaters Anonymous and sex, sex addicts that are not there's, – there's a natural – we accept that – 
somebody is not going to give up eating or sex. Um, the, the, the idea of support groups, these support groups, with, it, when we treat sort of compulsions around other substances that are, that are necessary like that, um, is, is to manage your eating. Um, you know, let's teach you, you know, but, but we have a, a different view around, around, around drugs and alcohol, certainly because of the, I mean, prohibition has a lot to do with it. Um, we've, we've um, you know, stigmatized drug use and made it this sort of, you know, inner city, you know, the idea that somebody will go out uh, on the weekend and, and, and snort a little Coke and party and have you know, fun with his friends and come home and work all weekend. You know, that's not what people have been trained to think about when they think about drug users, even though that's the majority of how the majority of people are using cocaine. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, we don't we don't impose those rules on people that eat too much and go to support groups. Um, but we we somehow think that there's no way to recover uh, for an alcoholic unless you never touch a drink again. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, even with opioids, if you, uh, you know, look at the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, you'll find, you know, there's 10 times more people that use opioids recreationally, non-medically, as they like to call it, as that have dependence. And the recreational users don't normally develop dependence. They do that for a while, and they tend to cut back when they get older, and, you know, because you get married and you get kids and jobs and responsibilities, and you don't have time for that shit anymore. Um, and that's the normal outcome of recreational use. It's not you took, uh, you know, you took one pill to get high and now you're on the slippery slope down to shooting up heroin and dying of an overdose in an alley. That doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. No, and, and, and of course, uh, you know, I mean, you know, for me, uh, as somebody who, who lived that particular lifestyle, you know, I mean, like I have a healthy fear of, 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 of that life. And, and like I know that, that I'm the kind of person that uh that just loves opiates that they will they will i will potentially harm myself but i never bought the message never bought the message from the beginning that uh that meant that i could not uh enjoy uh wine or beer or something it just didn't make any sense to me i think that it doesn't make sense to a lot of people and that's why they just go ah well fuck treatment i'm just going to stay an addict because they're not really given an option other than one that seems like on, on, on its face, rather crazy, let's just say it. Um, so, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I think that's, that's all revolves around that, that idea of, of where, you know, where we're going to, so where it's going to fall on, on what healthy and proper outcomes are for people that are having problems with a particular substance. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, well, like I said, I mean, it's, it's, it, I think it turns a lot of people off, um, uh, to be required to, you know, self-identify as, say, an alcoholic when you, you don't believe you are one um, or self-identify as an addict when, you know, you just had trouble with booze. Um, so, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a messaging problem. Um, and and that, mm-hmm. that was really the, the purpose of those articles, those particular articles I wrote for the Daily Beast. It was really just to address the messaging uh, that we're getting now that now that you can't turn on the TV without hearing about this um, and sort of what was what's missing in that. And, and in my mind, what, what was missing was, well, what about the people that are pain patients and, and dependent, but but are, are being captured in the net? You know, what about uh, a treatment? You know, this this monolithic idea of treatment, we're not really talking about what works and what doesn't. Um, you know, and, and, and such things like that. Um, we can't have a simplistic discussion on this or uh, we're not going to wind up place for sure. 
Mm-hmm. Well, also every other place you look in medicine, you know, when the patient's going to get treatment, let's look at cancer treatment again, um, you know, the, the patient gets told, okay, here's your options. There's radiation therapy, there's chemotherapy, there's surgery, whatever else there is. And here's the information about each of them, and here's how they would apply to your situation. Now, you choose which course of treatment uh, you want to pursue, um, which we do everywhere in medicine except addiction. Oh, we're sending you to this program. No. I mean, we need to inform people that want to get treatment for addiction um, and not uh, treat people who don't want, addiction, don't want treatment, but people that want treatment, they need to be informed. Okay, here's methadone, studied for over 50 years, guaranteed to reduce your mortality of overdose from heroin 75%. Here's buprenorphine, not been around as long, but early studies, I mean, studies so far suggest it's pretty good, and some people do better with bup and some better with methadone. Here's your 28-day inpatient abstinence-based rehab. Your chances of death will be 30 times greater after this than if you didn't go at all. Uh, go ahead, make your choice. Make your informed choice now of which treatment you want to pursue. You know, we should give people good information and let them make a choice. But, you know, people, people with addictions don't get to make choices about what treatment they want. They don't get to make choices of, oh, I want to cut back. I want to control my heroin use. Um, because some people do control their heroin use, like some people with alcohol addiction wind up controlling their drinking. Some people quit. Um, Quitting is easier for some people and easier for some substances for some people. Um, much easier for me to quit cigarettes completely than to try to be a controlled cigarette smoker. With alcohol, it's more easy for me to just do it once one day a week. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, we need that same thing for people that use drugs, you know, to have them have choices and have them make the choices themselves based on correct information. Exactly. Correct information. And, and, um, uh, as, as well, you read in the, in, uh, my, my most recent piece on treatment. I mean, there's really no, uh, there's very lax oversight of, of the treatment industry right now. Um, there is Mm -hmm. no, um, you know, you can, and, and payers are starting to pay attention, particularly the private insurance companies um, and sources that I spoke to in the insurance industry are starting to look at, at this and say, well, wait a second, like we've just kind of been writing these checks and not really paying attention. And there's, there's far more uh, conversation among payers uh, in, the med- in the healthcare industry to, um, about where we're, where we're going to get effective outcomes. Um, because, you know, there is really no requirement for a rehab to say, oh, hi, Jim, I see you're back for your third time. Come on in. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> telling you when you walk out the door, keep coming back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's going to require um, o- oversight of, um, you know, like what is consumer protection really is, is essentially what it is. Um, and there's mm-hmm, really no... Mm-hmm. There's, there's no real consumer protection in, in, in what you're being sold or marketed in that term. Um, Florida, man they, man, they fly people down there and promise them everything. And, they, you know, I mean, there's these destination rehabs, you know. I mean, you, you know about this. Um, and mm-hmm. um, it, it, it's become uh, uh, quite a problem in, in some communities down there, like Delray Beach and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, uh, we, are, we are returning to an issue that I, you're, you're a little too young. I was born in 1958, so, uh, and I went through my first alcoholism treatment in, 
I think it was 1994, um, which was right when they were initially cutting off the insurance. Uh, before the uh, mid-90s, um, the insurance companies had wound up at this place where they were paying for these 28-day stays over and over and over. There was unlimited addiction treatment coverage. Um, and they found out, you know, because I met guys, you know, uh, how many times have you been to treatment? Oh, I've been to treatment inpatient 30 times, you know, quarter million a shot or whatever the, you know, 60,000 a shot, mm-hmm. whatever it is, 30,000 a shot. You know, these guys, you know, they go through that 30 times and have their, they were having their insurance pay for it. And, you know, finally in the mid nineties, the insurance company said, no, we're not, we're going bankrupt. We can't pay for these people that are getting treatment over and over and getting no results because the treatment has no effectiveness. Hmm. Yeah. And and, and, uh, Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah. This is why treatment got cut down from unlimited numbers of 28 day rehab into, you know, insurance covering, Oh, we'll cover two weeks. They will cover uh, treatment once every two years or, but they, they put a lot of limits on it in the nineties. Yeah. And, and uh, there are, so, and, and certainly with, with, there's heroin users that at least, you know, when I was um, in, in running with that crowd that, you know, they go in, it's kind of like, oh, I need, you know, man, I need a break from the streets. And it's just kind of like a, <laughs> it's kind of like a pit stop, you know? And, and uh, mm-hmm. I remember I knew, I knew there was something, I think my first awakening to, to how something was terribly wrong with the treatment situation um, was um, uh, in one of my stays uh, of several stays. I think it might've even been my last day back in the nineties um, in, um, in a residential facility. And, you know, I, I was at that time, I had, you know, in, to use the terms of the rooms that, you know, kind of hit this rock bottom place. And I, I had, you know, I'd been coming out of homelessness and was in this desperate situation. And I was in group, a small group setting uh, therapy with, with an, a, another patient of this facility who was this, you know, well-to-do sort of middle-aged woman who was there because she felt she was out of control because she drank a bottle of wine every night while she was cooking dinner. And I, I just remember mm-hmm. thinking, like, this can't be, like, how can we both possibly be here in the same, either you're not getting what you need or I'm not getting what I need because there was nothing at all similar about us. And our stories, our, you know, our, our, our diseases, our, our, you know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like it was completely, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was like putting a cancer patient into treatment with a diabetic or something and, and, um, mm-hmm. and saying like, okay, here's your pills. Like w- one of you might get better. Um, so um, <laughs> it's just, it was just such a, it, it sort of resonated with me how really one size fits all it had become. You know, I mean, I remember looking at her and going like, oh my God, like if I could be you, I'd be, you know, I'd be, I'd feel successful, you know what I mean? And she, she probably was looking at me going like, oh, my God, where did they stick me? Like, I feel like I'm in prison. I don't know. <laughs> so that happens a lot. I mean, because I hear people say, you know, I, I, was, I went to this treatment and I couldn't relate to anyone there because, you know, I was drinking a bottle of wine and I, and I wanted to quit drinking completely because I thought I was really unhealthy. And they put me with all these heroin users. And it's like, I ah, you know, it's freaking people out, which is actually, you know, why you know, I founded a harm reduction group for alcohol because, you know, well, Pat Denning had written some great stuff about uh, reducing harm for drug and alcohol users, but most of her book is about drugs. 
and people that drink won't read it because I can't relate to those drug users. So, um, you know, I said, you know, we need a place just for harm reduction for alcohol. So I started this and wrote the book, you know, of harm reduction for alcohol so that I wouldn't freak all these people out. You know, I don't get freaked out by drug users anymore. I, I know the first day that I went to volunteer a needle exchange, walked up to knock on that door and says, oh, my God, I'm going to be with all these scary heroin <laughs> ah, you know, which, uh, you know, after a month, it was like, wow, this is like the nicest place I've ever been in my life. I love it here. But, uh, yeah, yeah, so I don't uh, have the, those feelings anymore. But, you know, there, there's a big difference. And, you know, people, people who have never used illegal drugs aren't comfortable around illegal drug users in general. And, and in my mind, there's a different, there's simply a different uh, prognosis and there's a different, there's a different, you know, set of therapies for, um, well, that's why, the, you know, the 12 steps, again, going back to the, well, it's all one disease, it's doing push-ups in the parking lot while you're in here and, you know, we, you need to learn all these slogans and read the big book and we, that, like, you know, everybody can get it. But, but there are really, you know, medical, like, neurological psychological, sociological differences between somebody that is, a, um, you know, somebody that's using heroin uh, daily or shooting speedballs than somebody that's, you know, the guy in the corner bar that, that, that blacks out drinking every night. Um, there are, you know, they are, we can't keep treating them as the same. Um, and that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. that I think heroin addicts or, or opiate users in general um, have been receiving subpar treatment because, they've been receiving treatment that, um, that is not tailored to their needs. Uh, and that, and that's, like I said, that's, that's part of that, that, uh, messaging. I, I have actually, in terms of, uh, I wanted to just mention the managed drinking thing. I, 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 I remember, um, working on research to pitch a story. I never did wind up doing it, but it was on, um, managed drinking, uh, houses for, for, for like home, um, some, some studies had been done, um, managed drinking. Yeah, yeah support housing where, where people can, you know, homeless people are, that are trying to get well can, are allowed to drink and they're given a certain amount of, you know, and, and I found it really uh, progressive and, and innovative. And they seem to really have much better outcomes. Um, oh, yeah. The, the wet house in Seattle, um, I, it's, I think it's 1811 East Lake or 18-something East Lake. Uh, yeah, they, I, I, uh, I know the researcher that does all the studies there. I actually met a whole bunch of the, the residents there on Skype um, at uh, the last time reduction conference. They Skyped in and I talked to them. I actually stayed in the wet housing in uh, Minneapolis many years ago, which is not done properly, but I'm not going to go into that. But the one they do in <laughs> Seattle is, is the model of this is the right way to do uh, wet housing uh, for people with alcohol dependence, you know, for homeless people with alcohol dependence, because that is the way to do it. And, you know, people just, you know, when you're on the street, you buy the bottle of vodka and you say, I have to drink this down immediately before somebody steals it from me, you know, <laughs> you know, just chug it down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people will get a roof over their head to get a safe place to drink. And it's like, um, well, I want to drink a lot more slowly now. I don't want to drink every day. I want to go to the library tomorrow. I'm not going to drink tonight. And, you know, and people just cut back because they, there's other things to do than just to get your bottle and drink it down as fast as you can. Mm. Sure. I mean, and that's the, and with, uh, that's what, you know, that's what I was, what I was kind of saying about the, the structure of prohibition with drug use. Certainly. I mean, you know, there's so much running and, and, 
and and hiding and and you know um, that you know there there is more going on than just the, the addiction is is the lifestyle that drain that it puts on you and the, and the harm it does to you physically and psychologically a lot of it has to do with you know the environment that you're stuck in and um and i imagine that uh and i i haven't studied switzerland as much as you know as that sounds like you have but i imagine that if you have you know a managed a safe place for people to 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 use um that's going to cut back on a lot of the a, a lot of the dangers that they face that are not really um even drug related i mean look when when the police cracked down in philly back in in the 98 operation sunrise it was called and they started really really harassing uh users and and dealers it became really dangerous um because people would say well i'm not going to take the chance i'll just rob this guy when he comes back to the train for his bags you know so it, it, the, the whole environment became, uh, it was the opposite of harm reduction. It was like harm intensification, you know, um, and uh, <laughs> that was directly a result of just, you know, a public policy that, that the mayor at the time thought was a, a good thing. Um, so it's, it's really going to take a, a new way of looking at, at, at drugs and drug use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you look at the heroin maintenance programs, you see, uh, you know, after a while, people get stabilized on them. And they start getting bored because, you know, they're not in this crazy, psychotic, crazy lifestyle <laughs> anymore. And uh, which is why lots of them will transition off the heroin maintenance onto the methadone and get a job. And, you know, because, you know, I, I'm bored just, you know, coming in to get my heroin doses every day and nothing to do. And I'm not on the street living this chaotic life anymore. You know, I'll, I'm just, I'm going to go on methadone and become a citizen instead and get a job. And it happens a lot. Yeah, I can see that. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I guess my big question, and, and I don't know the answer to this, uh, would be how long, how sustainable that is simply from a, um, from like a, a physiological standpoint, you know, with, um, you know, veins collapsing. And I mean, it seems like it would be a, eventually you might have to transition to methadone. Um, but, but I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I'm sure there's people that, that 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 can um, manage to you know inject three or four times a day for a lifetime. I mean they do on the street, um, but mm-hmm, I guess mm-hmm. when you're in a healthy setting like that, um, there's more resources for you to learn how to do it properly and where to do it properly and, and stuff like that. Well, yeah, I mean you're you're using a brand new needle every time, perfectly sharp, perfectly sterile. You're using sterile pharmaceutical grade heroin that you got from the government. Um, there's no, uh, you know, so nobody's getting abscesses. Nobody's getting these collapsed veins. You know, you can mm-hmm. actually shoot, you know, if you, you can actually shoot drugs all your life and not have your veins be collapsing if you have the proper equipment. But, you know, most people, well, as you know, uh, on the street, most people, you know, they reuse their syringe, you know, 10 times. Oh, over and over. It. Yeah. Even if they don't share it, you know, and you, know, you can look at a, at a microscopic picture of a needle after a single use, and it's all dulled down after one injection. You need a clean needle every time. Um, but if you do, if you use proper equipment, you know, pure drugs, um, you know, there's not much physiological damage at all. Yeah, and that's what's so dangerous about the, the, the pain patient pick part, part of this picture is that, is that like, let's even say – Let's say that the, the, the guy that is abusing his pain medicine, he's taking, you know, more Oxycontin than, than he's supposed to. He's doctor shopping. He's got like three doctors giving it to him. 
he's still safer than if he was on if he was transitioned to heroin. You know, you're getting something that you know it, the adulterants in in these drugs. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you never know what you're going to get. Um, and and I think that um, you know, it's, again, that goes to the idea of well, if somebody sh- should be given a ch- a, a, the choice to to use if they want, and if we're going if the answer is yes, then they should be given a choice to use safely. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, if you start looking, there's been some studies on the uh, demographics of uh, prescription opioid overdoses, uh, who has, who's likely to get an overdose. Um, and it's primarily middle-aged white people who are unemployed. They have mental illness. They have depression is the most common. Uh, they have chronic pain. They have high opioid prescriptions. Um, they're generally on their housing is not very stable. I mean, these are people who are absolutely miserable and they're mixing drugs and using very chaotically because they're, they feel life is hopeless and they're miserable. And we actually need to address, if we want to reduce, uh, drug related deaths, we need to actually give people lives worth living, which is another part of the Swiss program that they really focus on is Everybody gets housed. Everybody gets meaningful work. Everybody gets, you know, meaningful involvement in society. If we are society, it's not going to. We're not going to reduce drug overdose. Yeah, no, that's true. And um, you know, the, I I did actually just see a, a recent report, and I, I I can't cite it and or tell you much details about it, but it was looking into um, methadone's effect on. Um, depression and some of the psychological, some of the psychological um, pathologies that, you know, that people encounter that either push them to drugs or um, are sort of like, you know, developed through drug use that it has, it kind of does, it does help with depression and anxiety and some of the, uh, the secondary um, mental health issues that people have. I mean, I think that there's, that there's a lot of, you know, thought that has to be gone into why people are, are, um, you know, self-medicating, and, and and in some cases, this works for people. Um, and that, in that sense, there, you know, strict prohibition or criminalization is is actually preventing somebody, you know, um, and uh, the type of therapy that seems to be working for them. And I'm sure that's the mm-hmm, case mm-hmm. In, in a number of a number of situations um, with people. Mhm, mhm. Well, that's quite true. Um, but the point I was getting at is the people that. Uh, the people that are dying of prescription drug overdoses, um, they are in despair. And that is why they are using drugs very chaotically. Uh, dependence doesn't make mm-hmm. you very likely to die of an overdose. Most people with the dependence don't die of an overdose. Um, it's just, just, I mean, it just doesn't work that way. The people that are, you know, they don't give a fuck anymore. Life is so miserable. I don't give a fuck. I'm going to gobble down these uh 10 Percocets and uh, drink a bottle of vodka on top of them and boom, that's when you're dead. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Are you there? Yeah. Oh, I thought I lost you. (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) uh, So, okay. I'm going to actually have to uh, wrap up um, because I have another engagement. But it, I mean, I could go, I could talk about this forever. So feel free to have me any other time you want, <laughs> um, because okay. it's, uh, it's definitely definitely great to uh, to chat with you. And um, I'm gonna look more into um, your program, and um, and I'm sure we'll be talking again.
Okay, well, thanks for being on the show. This was a really good show. So, everybody, come back for our next episode. I don't have one scheduled yet, but I will schedule one soon. And we will see you all next time. So, good night. Good night. Thank you.